Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Today we'll be looking at John 14, verses 8 through 17, um, and this is Pentecost Sunday, and um, it's, it's the one selected, obviously there's discussion in this passage about the advocate, about, um, and uh, I think you're going to, when you read it, you're going to be reminded of themes we've already talked about, so I'm going to have Alan put it in the context there of, of this John 14. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, you know, one of the problems I've always had with the revised common lectionary gospel readings from John and Eastertide is that there just is a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were dealing with John 14, 23 to 29. Uh, but as we mentioned then, th- those verses are part of a chapter that functions as a unit. And mm-hmm. the same thing is true this week. So when the, when the lectionary takes these verses from the same chapter, I have always found it challenging as a pastor to know how to preach a different sermon on essentially the right. same text. Right. I'm going to try to bring out, so a lot of what we talk about today is going to be similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to try to bring out some, some, some emphases that are unique to these verses. You know, Alan, as you're, you're saying that, I think, you know, at least as you know, all know I'm an associate pastor. So my, my senior pastor, he's, He's actually just shifting, going from the Acts to John mm-hmm, and Acts mm-hmm. and John. Well, and I, this and would I be can, a Sunday I sometimes I that I would that do folks that. Yeah. Do that, yeah. and I guess is there any real value to trying to stay in the chapter for the entire of the season? Well, I'm doing it. I've I've been doing that since we started the podcast mm-hmm. because I sort of made a commitment to myself. You know, since we're doing the gospel lessons, I'm going to just go ahead and preach on mm-hmm. them. And I, I think, as I've shared before, I've preached some sermons on some passages that I've never preached before, mm-hmm. and I actually intentionally avoided. And so I'm doing that uh, right now because of what we're doing. Um, I, I do think there is some value in doing that because it, you know, as a, although there is some overlap in our in our in what we're talking about today versus what we talked about two weeks ago, there are some things in these verses that we didn't really emphasize mm-hmm. and and that have more of an emphasis today, and especially the theme of the empowerment of the disciples to be able to do the greater works. Um, mm-hmm. than, than even Jesus did. That's a major part of this passage. And so um, while some of the things that we're talking about are connect, we, you know, we talked about them earlier, connecting them with that major theme, I think is going to put them in a unique context. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. All right. So go ahead and give us some additional background about this particular pericope. Yeah. So as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, John 14 begins with Jesus seeking to reassure the disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them in my father's house so that where I am, there you may be also. And, you know, this is a common funeral text. And right. so we probably all know this text pretty right, well. Right, right, Thomas responded with the statement, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers by identifying himself as the way, the truth, truth, and the the life. life. Mm -hmm. And his follow-up comment about no one coming to the Father except through me in verse 6, and that if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him is another way in which the Johannine Jesus speaks about his intimate relationship Mm -hmm. with the Father. And 
as we've seen before, this is consistent with the themes throughout the gospel, that Jesus is the one who truly shows the world what his father is like. I mean, that starts off in the prologue right, um, with right. the idea that the word uh, has mm-hmm. is the one who has truly revealed right, the father. Right, right, right. So this leads us into today's passage. Yes, really. it does. Yes, it does. And that be- today's passage then begins with Philip's request, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Well, Philip asked that question or really kind of makes that request because Jesus has said, you know, you know me and you will know the father. And from now on, you do know him. You've seen him. And, and Philip is, I think in his own mind thinking, Hmm, really? Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and so, you know, in the context of John's gospel, which speaks of Jesus as the word made flesh, who has glory as of the father's only son from the very first chapter, mm-hmm. Philip's request must seem a bit dense, you know, in the, in the context of the gospel, because he continues to speak about the relationship you, between himself and the Father. Okay, let me ask this. Do you think that this is part of John's, the, the evangelist's, just a, a purpose to kind of get us to think in these terms? Is Because, you know, I'm reading along, and I'm thinking about this um, as, well, Jesus and God as being one because we're kind of watching this this unfold. Is it? I mean, do you think this is more of a literary technique, or do you think this is a report? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't have a good answer for you, to be honest with you, okay. Christy. But um, what I the way I see it is, you know, I mean, I think most of us um, in this era, you know, with all the the creeds and the and the confessions mm-hmm. that we have behind us, we read a statement like you know, you, if you know me, you will know my father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him in terms of Jesus hypostatic union with God. And that is not what the gospel of John is about. Uh, The gospel of John is much more about the things that Jesus did were the things that God was doing and the things that Jesus said were the things that God wanted said. And, and that's what Jesus basically says to Philip you know, he says, mm-hmm. you know, have, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, we might read that from the standpoint of a hypostatic union. They are right. aware of one essence, but that's not the original context in John's right. gospel. He says, you know, Jesus goes on and says, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Again, we, we would see that from mm-hmm. an ontological perspective. Right, right. But he, he goes on to say, the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own, but the the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe because of the works themselves. So the assumption here is that the, Philip and the other disciples should have been able to understand the close relationship between Jesus and the Father, if not based on their own insight, then at the very least on the basis of the works that he has done. And again, I think what we see here is this theme in John's gospel that is just pervades John's gospel. Jesus does what the Father shows him to do. Jesus says what the Father tells him to say. So Jesus' obedience to the Father mm-hmm. then becomes the definition of this hmm. relationship in which, you know, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's the definition of that relationship. In in John's gospel, it's okay. a very functional uh, uh, way of speaking. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. It's a very and, functional and Christology. I, I can see, and I can see how we are conditioned to read this differently than instead of this more functional. We're conditioned to read it more as an ontological Uh, statement. Right. And it's, it's really a functional Mm, statement mm. in John's gospel about, you know, Jesus demonstrates this identity between 
God and the Father. Jesus demonstrates that I am in the Father and the Father is in me by the things he does and by the things right. he says. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Good, and, good. and we saw that earlier, you know, when we were talking about John chapter 1030, that statement, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw in that context right. as well that it was also a functional, a functional I remember statement. remember that discussion, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it, it's a good reminder because, again, I think I think our creeds, you're right, do kind of condition us to see this yeah. in a different way. Different yeah. way. Okay, yeah. so um, why don't you go on and tell us more about this section? Yeah. So again, on that basis, then you know, um, on this on this basis of Jesus' statement of their his close identity that that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Him because and the disciples should know this because they see Him doing God's works or here they see God doing His works through Jesus, which I think mm-hmm. is an interesting twist on that thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and they hear Jesus speaking God's words, and so then the dialogue continues with Jesus' statement that. That uh, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, right. will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And that's verse twelve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I've always found it hard to imagine the disciples being able to do greater works I, I agree. than the ones to, Jesus to did. To me, it's very. Um, it's like how that can't <laughs> right, be. right. But in the context of John's gospel, I would say that this points to their carrying on right. his legacy of fulfilling God's work in the world, and that would include bearing witness to Jesus. But it would also would include their living lives of faithful discipleship. Yep. And you know, I think their witness and their 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 faithful discipleship would have effects that would reach more widely than any of them could likely imagine. You know. And actually, now that you discuss this, after we've kind of fleshed out this functional nature, mm-hmm. this makes more sense to right. me. Right, because actually. he's calling them to follow in his footsteps, right? Right, right. so there's a, the, the functions that they would carry right. out. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's go on to the next verses. Yeah, and you know, I think the next verses have been a source of a great deal of confusion, in my opinion, in the church. Jesus continues to say, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you, if in my name you ask for anything, ask me for anything, I will do it. And that's verses 13 and 14. And there's so many in the church who read this as a kind of carte blanche for prayer, as long as you say in Jesus' yes. name at the end yes. of it. Right? And, and, but, you know, I think we have to think a little more biblically about what it means to um, ask in my name, ask in Jesus' name. And I think, first of all, the intention is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, right? I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Well, we've already seen that Jesus glorified God in John's gospel by carrying out God's work in the world. So, I mean, how it seems to me that the disciples are going to be able, you know, the Father's going to be glorified in the Son through what the disciples do and what they ask in prayer in the same way, by right. carrying out God's work in the world. Right, right, right. And so, you know, Jesus had also just assured the disciples that after he was gone, they would do greater works than he had done. And so given this context, I would say that the promise Jesus makes here, that I will do whatever you ask in my name, is to be understood as his assurance that after his departure, they could ask for the insight, for the faith, mm-hmm. for the courage, for the strength to do the greater things that he promised them mm-hmm. they would do. And so it's it's all about 
their work. It's all about empowering them to do their yeah, work. Yeah, and that, which makes a lot more sense. The other makes it almost like magic. It does. You know, it's like, oh, well, if I just pray for this and ask for Jesus' blessing on it, then it's going to happen. All I have to say is and, in Jesus' name. You know, yeah. in ministry... How often do we hear, well, I prayed about it, and it didn't happen that I prayed about it. So therefore, blank, blank, blank. And it's it's a real problem, well, actually, with our... I mean, and there's a whole there's a whole cadre of people out there in the name it, claim it um, groups. Uh, I mean, in the Baptist world, I ran into these folks all the time. And, and it's, it's really sad because I think these folks write checks that God never intended to cash. Right, you know, right. they they make promises in God's name. That's true for as things well. that 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 God never right. promised. Here, the point of this is that Jesus is reassuring the disciples that after He leaves, um, they're going to be able to do these greater things due to the fact that Jesus was going to empower them to continue the work He had He had begun. And so the you know whatever you ask in my name i will do for you has to do with empowering them mm-hmm. to continue the work he had mm. begun wow. it's not about just a carte blanche right. for, for your favorite you know i, I really would like a you know a maserati right, or, right. Or, or you know i really need want that house with an acreage you I know want an a on an a on my geography <laughs> I want an a class. on my on my test <laughs> yeah no it's not about that at all so, I mean, and I think in a very real sense, if you read the story of the disciples' ministry in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, I think it shows us how they did just that. They did right. carry on Jesus' work, and they did do greater things that he promised that he would do. And, and so what they did in Jesus' name was to continue his work of bringing God's kingdom to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, when we pray for something in Jesus' name, you know, you know, I can't ask for for um, you know, um, um, question. I can't ask for a brand new shiny BMW motorcycle in Jesus' name because that has nothing to do with right. what God is doing in the world. Right. I can ask for God to give me strength and faith and courage to continue the ministry in my church. Right. 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 That's praying yes. in Jesus' and name. That's praying in Jesus' name. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very, very, very good. Yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to keep move on here because I, I, when I read this, I saw this in kind of little, little pieces. And so this next theme comes out, which is about love. Right. Well, and, and to me, see, I, I see the next statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, as part of this theme of empowerment. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talked about yeah. this before, we talked about the disjointedness of this passage. But I think we can also see it from the standpoint of the promise of empowerment to do these greater works that Jesus was talking about. And part of that would be that they would be empowered by their love for Jesus to keep his commands. Right. Which, you think about that, that's no small thing, right? In right. trying to right, live right. a life of obedience to Christ the way Christ lived a life of obedience to the father that's no small thing and we need to we need help in doing that so alan you just did something i think really important for my initial reading which was instead of seeing this in these kinds of chunks to make it have this continuity i feel Mm -hmm. like you just took a needle and you punctured it through Mm -hmm. the top and now through this one and tied it in like a stitch and this may be this may be my my own interpretive framework i don't know no 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 i think this is helpful because i when you first read this it just kind of is like oh and now all of a sudden but it stems back to this whole functional Mm -hmm. emphasis you made Mm -hmm. prior to and now all of a sudden it's starting to make more sense and it starts it starts with jesus relationship with the father Right, which mm-hmm. is a which is a functional one. Right, Jesus does the things the Father does. Jesus says the things the Father says, and it goes to then to 
the disciples carrying out that legacy and that they will be empowered to do that, those greater things. And so I, it just made some sense mm-hmm. to see this as an extension of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I agree. that that keeping the commands was a part of their their following his legacy of obedience to the father just as jesus obeyed the father they would obey jesus commands and they would be empowered to do mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. um and so you know again i think this brings up a theme that we've discussed you know several times you know those who love jesus bear fruit and discipleship by obeying his commands and again um Jesus' relationship of loving obedience toward the Father is a pattern for their relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm, and so it, mm-hmm. I think so it is that here Jesus can say that those who love him will keep his right. commandments. And, you know, again, this is, this is part of that theme of empowerment that I'm seeing here. But, it, you know, he'll sum up his commandments in the next chapter right. in terms of the command to love one another as I have mm-hmm, loved you. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the essence of it, basically. Um, I, and I fall back to Augustine here, you know. He he made the famous statement, "Love and do what you will." Right. Because if you're if you're if you're obeying the command to love, you know you are doing what God right. wants to be done, right. and you're saying what God wants said. Yeah. No, yeah. this all makes sense. Now, again, for me, was this next part, but right. I think you're going right. to probably tie that in as well, which is where the advocate comes in. Um, who I think in, in kind of traditional theology is usually interpreted as Holy Spirit. Oh yes, and 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 I don't think there's I don't think okay. there's any question here that that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah, um, and I again I would see this. I mean, yeah, it it feels a little disjointed on the surface of things, but I I would see this as um, another part of the promise of empowerment. Uh, you know, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Advocate to be with you forever. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus. One of the one of the things that Jesus did for the disciples while He was with them was to enable them and encourage them and strengthen them in in their in their work of following Him. Well, when He's gone, they're going to need someone else to help Him do that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, uh, that that's what's going on here. I think you know He's gonna He's gonna send. The, the Father's going to give the advocate or the parakletos or, or the helper or the encourager. And all of this basically relates to the promise of the Spirit mm-hmm. uh, and that the Spirit will empower them to carry out these greater works. Now, Jesus goes on to identify these, this advocate in verse 17 as the Spirit mm-hmm. of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, which is an interesting statement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting um, I think you get some of that us against the world kind of theology of, of the Johannine um, editors and authors here. Uh, but nevertheless, he assures the disciples that you know him because he abides with you right. and he will be in you. And so not only does the spirit abide with the disciples, and mm-hmm. I think about the theme of abiding in Christ in John 15, that's going to come up, you know, in the very next chapter, right. uh, you know, I, I would read this this idea of the Spirit abiding with the disciples in terms of the Spirit's empowerment for their work through an ongoing presence. But also, if we continue the gospel reading to include the optional verses in 25 through 27, we see in verses 24, 25 and 26, I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Again, we see, mm-hmm. and I think we see the primary work of the Spirit of truth uh, as he's called elsewhere, is to teach you everything and remind you of all I, that I have said mm-hmm. to you. And so the idea, I think, here is that they would not be left to their own devices right. when it came, even to the content of their message, right. but rather the Spirit would guide them with that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, y- y- you know, I think, I think when, I, when I work with young people, this concept of Holy Spirit 
is really hard to wrap your brain around. And I think some of the things you pointed out here is um, that this this emphasized here with the Holy Spirit's presence, and yet this idea that you don't really you people wouldn't necessarily be able to see. Right. And and so it's it's an interesting concept for us. I think for especially for us kind of human beings today that are trying to make sense that we we use our sense experiences sure. to um, have the Holy Spirit. But I I like um, I guess I like the language used here. I like I like the explanations that come through here, which I think in some ways um, makes it clearer than it does in other other places. Well, and I would say you know, and I would say to them, I think we see the Spirit's work through the Spirit's fruit in our lives yeah, and through the Spirit's gifts for right, ministry. Right. And so, you know, when I get up to preach, if I preach a sermon that's particularly helpful or inspiring or building up the body of right. Christ, I would, I would like to be able to say that is, you know, mainly because right. of the Spirit's work through right. me. And so I think we, again, it's almost like a functional doctrine yeah, of the it, holy spirit is, we see is. the holy spirit through right. the spirit's work in our lives shaping us in our character with the fruit right. of the spirit and also gifting us for ministry again to carry out oh, this these greater works i agree i i was just in a conversation it was a public conversation where i was being asked questions and someone asked me about the work of 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 being with the dying and and i said i I can't do this work without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't do it. Yeah. It is. I rely on that, and that it's. But it's still when you, with someone. What? Well, how do you know the Holy Spirit? So how do you? Uh, you want? I, I think it's something that that folks want you to be able to to bottle up and mm-hmm. and, and sell. And it's like it, it doesn't work that no, way. There are, there are times when I, like I may get it in the pulpit, or I may be with a family, you know, or whatever, and I don't necessarily feel the Spirit's presence. But I believe the Spirit is there, right. and I rely on that promise to right. that that yeah. that even if I don't feel it, even if I don't feel the Spirit's presence, that the Spirit is still working through me, uh, especially on those days when I don't feel it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move on here. Um, my favorite, probably my favorite verse of the Bible: "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you." Tell us about how this moves. Yeah. On from this. So again, if we follow the optional verses of this passage, we conclude with that beautiful assurance that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think the point of again, if you, if we interpret this in terms of the point of the whole farewell discourse, which is to comfort the disciples regarding Jesus' impending departure, then. Here, the fourth gospel encourages them not to be afraid, not only because the helper would come to them, but also because Jesus would leave his peace mm-hmm, with them. Mm-hmm. And to me, in the context, that suggests the promise of his presence yeah. to comfort yeah. and to encourage them in their work yep. after his departure. Yep. Because again, that's the whole setting, right? right is that right. you know Jesus is trying to comfort and encourage them in their work that they will do after he is no longer there to help them. I, I'd like that the Revised Common Lectionary put this back in because mm-hmm. I think it kind of, um, you know, as I said, I've read this initially in these kind of chunks. And for me, this really also helped mm-hmm. put it together into sure. one. And now it's even got a, a stronger a stronger meaning as I'm as thinking about this functional mm-hmm. um, and, and thinking it actually makes me think of peace of having a function too. Mm-hmm. even. Um, so this is really... I think this is really good 
Um, well, and, and the way that I will develop this very likely in my sermon um, on this passage on Pentecost Sunday is that I will focus on this idea of encouragement and empowerment um, for doing the greater works of ministry mm-hmm. that Jesus has promised that we will do. Mm. And and when, when you look at the whole passage through that lens, you know, it gives it a different, it does give it a little bit different uh, read. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... And maybe um, just kind of put this into this broad context for us. At the yeah. End. And so again, you know, as we've seen before, the attention of the farewell discourse is to provide encouragement to the disciples who were troubled by the notion that Jesus mm-hmm. would leave them. I could very well see them thinking, how can we continue without mm-hmm. Jesus? You know, I agree. Uh, but and in this context, the fourth gospel offers comfort in the form of assurance regarding their relationship with Jesus and the father, which is defined in terms of Jesus obeying God by doing what God wanted done and saying what God wanted said that that was mm-hmm. that was we saw that functional relationship that functional identity of uh, the father is in me and I am in the father those who love Jesus will be empowered to glorify God by doing greater works which in the first place consists of following his example of loving obedience to the father by their with their own obedience Jesus commands especially the command to love but they will I think furthermore be empowered by the advocate or the helper the spirit who will come to them to guide them into all truth and to enable them to bear fruit in faithful discipleship and furthermore I think Jesus promised to leave his peace with them suggests that he's promising his presence to encourage them in their work after his departure mm-hmm. and again so all of this is connected then to the goal to enable the disciples to glorify yes, God by yes. doing the greater works that Jesus promised they would do yeah yeah it's kind of a I'm going to call it a pep talk, but it, yeah, it is. Definitely. kind of is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is indeed. Well, we're going to take a little bit different spin in a little bit with our reformers. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy uh, talk to us about how the Reformers read this passage and some of the concerns they brought up. So, Christy, tell us what you found. Sure. We're going to go off on a little tangent today um, to prepare everybody. But let's to give you some background. Um, as we've been talking, as we're doing the podcast, there's some themes that are obvious to Reformers. And first is the nature of the Trinity, and the second is the relationship between faith and works. And we have covered them on and off um, throughout our podcast. Um, but today I want to talk a little bit more about how, how God is known. And I think that's really important because it gets us into why they focus on this so much and indeed some of the things that come out of this passage. Um, now, First of all, is the nature of God, and, and for Calvin anyway, we know that um, the sovereignty of God is is number one, um, and that's led to things like the doctrine of predestination because God knows everything, and therefore God knows if you're saved or theoretically if you're damned, and all these different pieces. Um, and then, of course, that leads to the discussion of the Trinity. How does God's sovereignty work within the context of the triune God? And so. How one of the que- topics that Calvin picks up here is that even though we can know God, um, because of the world around us, we cannot know God because God is everything. God is sovereign. God created the world. So can we not see God in creation? And yet at the same time, Calvin says, well, sort of. You could get glimpses of God um, in in creation, but you can't really see God fully until you um 
until you understand God in Christ. Um, and as he says, um, so he referencing to that Philip's question, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Calvin expounds on this, claiming that people do attempt to know God by indirect and crooked paths, <laughs> but that they are all really missing the fullness of God who is in Christ. And I didn't go to the... Um, uh, the institutes for this specifically, but he deals with this quite extensively in the institutes. Um, and uh, so, but here um, I wanted to, this, and so this is where one of those places then it says, yeah, you can kind of know God, but not really only through scripture. But one of our emphases we know in the Reformation is this idea of scripture. And I wanted to, um, and emphasize this because there's kind of, I think there's a turnaround in some of our churches today to walk away from scripture sure, and focus maybe on human intellect as a manifestation of God or vice versa. Human artistic creativity. Oh, human artistic creativity. You know, I, I've seen people worship on novels or on, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then according to Calvin, those things don't really represent God. Likewise, you might get this very, very spiritualist tradition, like the Pentecostal tradition. I don't want to pick, pick, up, pick on Pentecostals because they're also scriptural, but, but to the extreme side of that claiming the Spirit is talking without Scripture in right. it, which is sometimes dangerous. The, the Spirit speaks beyond Scripture. Beyond Scripture. In some of those contexts. Right, right. right. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll see people that, that are actually taking actions that are contrary to Scripture mm-hmm. because... They'll come, oh, God told me to do right, it. Right. And so it, scripture has this important rooting for our identity as Christians, and that's a huge part of Calvin. Well, and, um, and I think it's important, as you, as you indicate, you know, that, that, that our, our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ as we know him through the written word. Mm-hmm, and, you mm-hmm. know, in our book of order, we, we express that. Right, you know, it is exactly. the, the living word through the written word. Exactly, you know, that, that, exactly. That's how we know yeah, God. how we know God's nature. Now, I wanted to put in that Martin Luther adds to this conversation by discussing why the disciples did not know God through Jesus, even though they knew him in the flesh. I think that's a really good question on the part of Martin Luther, right? Because it, it's like that's exactly what what Jesus asked Philip: "Have I been with you, and you still don't know me?" Right, you know, right. And and for Luther, knowing moves beyond just being physically present, but uh, mm. but know Jesus's being. Um, he says in his sermon on John. Quote, a Christian's true knowledge to learn to know Christ aright, to distinguish him from all thought, existence, doctrine, life, and all that humankind may undertake, to cling to him alone in faith, and to say wholeheartedly, I know and want to know nothing in divine matters except my Lord Christ. He alone must be everything that concerns my salvation, and that must be settled between God and me. So for Luther, this knowledge is based on faith. It's not a knowledge of the senses or a knowledge based on reasons. Well, and it's, you know, I must say to some extent, I think I resonate with this because it's it's a knowledge that's centered in Jesus. Yeah. And by the way, you know, me with my concordance brain, you know, I want to know nothing in divine matters save my Lord Christ. That's a reference to something that Paul said in First Corinthians. I had determined to to be, you right. know, he says, I was with you in weakness and much trembling, but I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Right, and, right. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I kind of like that Christocentric kind of idea about our our knowledge of God. We understand God through Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I get that, you know, I get I get Calvin's point that we know Christ through the written word to some extent, but, right. 
uh, so so it's all focused on scripture, right? right to some right. extent, and but uh, to to some extent, I really like the the Christocentric kind of approach, right? And I think right there you see some of the differences between Luther and Calvin, mm-hmm. right? And you you see that this kind of intellectual tradition that we are as Presbyterians, our frozen chosen, our our intellectual approach to faith, which sometimes can be lacking, yeah. as we know, as we're trying to. Um, is we're trying to share our spiritual side with our congregations who look at us with these big eyes of, oh, that's too spiritual for me. Yeah, right. You know, um, to to Luther, well, who, who who does have this very spiritual presence about him, sure. um, where he doesn't always have to go to the intellectual ends to to tie everything up. He's just like, just I just have faith. And so there's yeah. something nice about that. Yeah, there mm-hmm. is. I also think about, it made me think about Karl Barth because, of course, Barth's theology was yes. very Christocentric and, and his understanding of our knowledge of God was through Jesus in right. a very clear way. Right. And Barth represents the Reformed tradition. He does. But yet, you know, you see that emphasis coming out. But what I hear in Barth, and one of the things I think why why we hold him in such high esteem is he's confronting um, a Reformed tradition that's kind of gone off the deep end mm-hmm. with its intellectualism Mm -hmm. without really pulling into this spiritual identity. And we can talk about that in terms of how we got there and we don't historically, but um, I I do think Luther has something to say to us today as well, just like Bart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think about when you're talking about knowing God through the created order and how Calvin talks about this, I think about the great debate between Emil Brunner and Karl Barth. Emil Brunner was a Swiss Mm -hmm. reformed theologian who advocated that we could truly know God through natural revelation. Right. right. And Karl Barth published a famous article entitled nine with an exclamation mark. No. (laughs) Uh, uh, Right. Exactly. Well, and I think, you know, put that, I put that out there because I hear that today from Mm -hmm. people. It's like, Sure. I don't, you know, I could just, Of course. I can yeah. worship God better uh, on a walk in the in the park than I can in church. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, anyway, the rest of my se- se- section here, I wanted to talk a little bit about why are the reformers so concerned about how one knows God? And I think putting them this in its historical context will give you, because it seems like we spend a lot of time here with reformers, but but they are challenging what is a fundamental assumption about how you knew God in the Middle Ages, how the church understood God, and so and how, how one knew. And so I wanted to address that today. And one of, the, um, one of the main reasons that common people in particular did not know God is that they were so far removed from Jesus. That seems odd to us because, we, right. we, you know, we're, we think, especially if you, you know, familiar with contemporary Roman Catholic tradition, you know, well, we always have the crucifixes everywhere with Jesus mm-hmm. on it. But honestly, the common person, especially in the Middle Ages, did uh, really, their, their faith was more about their relationship to the saint, and the saint would intercede for you to Jesus. Jesus was simply too high and too perfect for a common person. So many folks would pray to the given patron saint, or a saint known for having specific intercessory abilities for a specific sin or need. 
So you could pray for the saint, asking them to intercede to Jesus for you. Wow. I, you know, that is such an important piece of background. I think it really brings things into focus as right. to why the reformers were so concerned about how does one know God. And it's, I think it's hard for those of us in the Protestant space to even be able to envision right. that you couldn't go directly to Jesus Christ right. yourself, right. that, that exactly. somehow there was this, you know, this, 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 uh, um, uh, uh, ranked hierarchy system right. where you had to go through the proper saint in order to get to Jesus. Well, and you have to think of this too in terms of a world that is hierarchical in a way that mm. we aren't. I mean, we're, we're we're functionally not equal, but we do here in the United States at least claim that mm-hmm. everyone's created equal. Well, they didn't even no, begin no, to believe that. Right, right. And and so when you're in the society, when you really think that you don't have any agency to reach to reach Jesus yourself, you go to these lesser, these lesser people. And well, and that whole idea that that a common person, that Jesus was simply too high and too perfect for a common person to absolutely. pray directly to yeah, Jesus. Yeah, you couldn't do it's that. It's like whoa. <laughs> it, it, it's bizarre, but I printed off for Alan. If you go Google, there are hundreds of saints. Um, for all kinds of things. And so everyone had, you know, and you remember Luther prayed to whom? St. Anne, right? right? right. Oh, God, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And he does. And so you even see it in his tradition. But I don't know, hundreds of of saints that that have specific functionings. We were giggling earlier about the patron saint of computer scientists, you know, um, Isidore of Seville. I mean, bef- way before computer right, science right. was there. But yeah, there's, there's aviators and astronauts and astronomers. You everybody know. gets, everybody has a saint. You know, everybody has someone on their side. Um, but um, now, and I think you could, you could make the argument um, that this looks very polytheistic. And I, the Roman Catholic Church would argue that, that it, does not contradict um, Christian monotheism, um, but um, if if you were if if you were actually praying to the saints, you were acknowledging that they are uniquely holy above human sin. And so, while Roman Catholics would argue that this is not so, I think we can see why the Protestant reformers were concerned. Surely, right? <laughs> and as we might note, um, that Jesus is really viewed as a judge, and we've talked about this before. I mean. When, when you're looking at uh, Jesus in, in the churches, right, you're going to see either Jesus dying, mm-hmm. basically took on all of our sin, um, but and, and died for us, or you see this Jesus that is at the right hand of God, Jesus the King. You never see Jesus just in his humanity. Human, in, the, right? in his human right. ministry. Now, yeah, you his do in ministry. a Protestant church. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, but you you don't in a Roman Catholic church mm-hmm. unless it's on the panels of the church of the story or maybe at the Stations of the Cross. Stations of the Cross, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But you're not going to see that. But that's at the still front. connected with the cross. Yeah, yeah. You just don't see Jesus and and teaching, for example. Right. You don't see Jesus the good shepherd. You don't see those. Well, images. One of the images that I've just just is just always been in my mind is Jesus receiving the children. That's just one uh, that has been in my love. mind since mm-hmm. I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and you don't see it there. And so with that and with that mind in that context, then you can and 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 that you, you can't fully take communion, right? We've talked about that before. That there's this real sense of hierarchy. So we, we, I need to put this into a little more perspective for you. Um, so you can see um, this kind of skewed version of how we know God in the Roman Catholic tradition, and then we get this unique 
series of faith practices that come after it. And that's this cult of saints that I've, we just talked about. Now, this falls into that Neoplatonic structure we've talked about before, with God being Holy Spirit and perfect. And, but our human bodies are physical, and therefore closer to the earth. And then the inanimate objects are at the bottom. So it's this dualism of our, our identity that we're both, we're both flesh and we're both spirit mm, together. Yeah. So it is possible within a Roman Catholic tradition to foster our spirit nature and put down our physical nature. Thus, Jesus being fully God and fully human is at the top of the spectrum. And then the saints, whose spiritual merit outweighs their human sin. And then, of course, clergy, the priests in particular, but also the male monks and then female nuns. And then, um, so the more that human beings can deny their physical nature, the mm. closer to God they can become. And we, we saw that we see this a lot with the some of the practices of the monks, the asceticism or the the the, the flesh hurting the flesh, so that mm-hmm. they can could deny it. If Castigating, you will. Mm-hmm, yeah. exactly. I, you know, and uh, again, I have to say that is just so foreign to my understanding of Christ. I mean, I was raised in in a church where. You know, yeah, you felt guilty for your sins, and you tried to do better, and you tried to be a better better than you were. But to to fully say that our entire physical nature is an obstacle right. to knowing God, to me, that is so contrary to the biblical message as I've come to understand it. Because you know, Jesus shows us, you know, God in flesh, right? And and right. to some extent, you know, the way you know the fact that Jesus was cast you know that he was he was slandered as a as a as a glutton and a and a drunkard you know he enjoyed life and i think you know there's some folks who have studied jesus from that perspective of the really the wisdom tradition in the hebrew bible which is about the true enjoyment of life not right not some sort of um Right, hedonism, right. but exactly. but ju- right. just the fact right. that you know enjoying the God's good creation that it is exactly. good. Exactly, this whole good creation yeah. that is good, and this kind of says creation is bad. Yeah, and yeah. and and there's a thing, and of course I didn't put in my notes today, but women who are by their nature because they are bearers of life are naturally in this system underneath men. They, they're they victims of their bodies, of their mm-hmm. monthly cycles, and therefore they're, they're lower. And therefore they aren't capable of being high enough to be in a role like a priest. Wow. You could be a nun, which are considered, considered to be particularly amazing that they can be in this role of celibacy because as women they're created, if you will, to be baser their whole purpose of life is to bear children right and so when i get this stuff from roman catholic tradition how women can never be priests it's still tied in Mm -hmm. to a truly belief of women being spiritually inferior well and it sounds like it's it's still tied into a medieval worldview about humanity Mm -hmm. as well exactly exactly and of course what do i think it does i think it continues to perpetuate inequality and 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 indeed how god actually made us to be so Mm -hmm. i'm 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 pretty I'm I, I guess I think being a Protestant um, uh, clergy that it's really important for for females to have have this voice. Absolutely, yeah. So moving on, <laughs> um, all humans um, except Jesus therefore have sin, um, and in order to realize your salvation, you have to be forgiven of this sin. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition. You have to go to an intercessor that has the ability to forgive your sins, a priest. And this, it, this means as a human being, 
you can't really know God. You can't trust in Jesus' death for your sins, but rather have someone else who can convey that forgiveness. I, my, my mouth is just hanging on the floor. <laughs> I mean, this is just so contrary to biblical teaching as far as I understand it. Absolutely. Now, uh, again, you know how you know God is important, <laughs> right? For in this system, you know God by those who are holy. The saints, which I just mm. talked about, were holy. And they were so holy, they built up merits of good that could help you. So again, this then leads to Roman Catholic practice, this cult of the saints, and that anything that came from a saint, they in fact, they were capable of so much good that they, they um, d- built up um, uh, merits of good. Um, so whatever came from a saint that was good was holy and could help you in your reunion with God. And then this, this is where the practice of indulgences comes in. And we know that this was something that Martin Luther would attack. He first attacked it based on that. He thought it, the whole, it was being abused, um, the practice because he thought people were, it was becoming like a cheap sale. Well, I mean, essentially, you know, (laughs) the Pope, uh, sent out his his indulgence peddlers to be able to finance St. Paul's exactly. Cathedral, right? <laughs> exactly. But I wanted to give you just a little more background on it because this actually is this treasury of merits that have built up grace to help um, help free your loved ones from temporal sin. So when you sin, um, there there were there were two types of of there was eternal sin and there was temporal sins and so eternal sin is forgiven but you had to be in this full state of grace mm-hmm. in order to go to heaven so you were going to be sinning in between there and there was going to be things that you needed to work off and this in is, purgatory in purgatory well you can work it off today right. as an individual if you're alive and so you might do things like you might go to an extra mass. You mm-hmm. might say your Hail Marys to mm-hmm. work off your, your sins. You might, um, um, you might do some type of, of charity work. Mm-hmm. For, there are lots of ways that you could work off your sin, but if you die before your, sin, your temporal sins worked off, then you're in purgatory. Mm-hmm. And um, there are some things that, that got you in a whole heaps of trouble and so you had lots of sin to work off and so uh, the deadly sins i'm thinking of especially yeah lots of things to work off and so you could you could tap into these merits that were built up by the saints Mm -hmm. um and there were times in the church church jubilees there was um um, there's a, a whole day of atonement which you can buy off your sins during there's all kinds of ways that you can do it and in particular was um, for people that were going on crusade were giving plenary adult this was like the biggest thing you could do to work off your sin of course but yeah. but the problem is if you couldn't go on crusade and you couldn't buy into that because you couldn't do it that's when this whole process really started so, but these saints have built up all these sins and you can tap into that if you would uh maybe if the you, saints have built up this merit and exactly you t- and you could tap, tap into, into that yeah. and so that's how this kind of kind of started and you mm. can see all of a sudden we are really a long way away from jesus died for my sins wow yeah well and you know it, again it, it seems like a very mechanistic view of salvation mm-hmm. as well as almost mercantile a mercantilization 
mm-hmm. uh, a commercialization mm-hmm. of salvation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, uh, you, you know, you you if you if you work enough, you know, you you get to go straight to heaven. If you don't, you got to go to purgatory. Right. And and but your loved right. one can buy you out of purgatory. You know, by by. Um, buying enough merit from this that the saints have built up right, for, exactly, on your behalf. Exactly. But again, it's like you said, there's nothing about Jesus dying for your sins no. here. It's about the merit of the saints that they've built up that you can buy, you can access through an indulgence. Yeah, yeah. And you can see <laughs> the injustice of this too because, you know, you can see see how somebody rich could go to mm-hmm. their bishop and, and say, I'm going to donate all this money and they might use that as a mean. Okay, that will be appropriate uh, appropriate ways for you to work off your sin. And, Absolutely. And the other problem that Luther really came into was then you would have people that would be kind of swindled, as, as I said, and it, it became extra abused in the mm-hmm. Reformation. And so they're giving money they don't have, so they'd end up with a piece of paper that would be pardoning them. And it totally, um, it totally kind of got rid of, of this, this wonderful, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah. And um, it seems th- like it completely displaced it. it they did, yeah. and I think um, I think I'm hoping anyway by by this discussion you can see why they're so concerned on how we know God. You know, a couple of things, couple of thoughts come to mind. Um, I I certainly understand why the reformers had such a problem with the saints. I, I have to say I do lament the fact that they that they I think. My understanding is they were so going off in the other direction that in a lot of Protestant circles, we have forgotten the legacy of the lives of, you know, great Christian heroes, yeah, uh, great yeah. Christian leaders of the past. And, and not that their merit is going to save us or that we right. have to intercede, you know, we, we can only approach God and, and Christ through them, but that, you know, their examples of right. what they've done, you know, in the past can be an encouragement right. to us. Well, and I think they would say that, you know, and you still have in many Protestant traditions where you are recognizing, Surely. you have like um, churches that will be recognize it. I, I think it's the, the, the question is there the cult of the right. saints, no, the prayer exactly. of the saints. Exactly. And remember, and I didn't talk about, you know, these saints then, anything they touched or, or parts of their body then mm-hmm. become, became to have power in themselves. Right. I mean, relics. going on pilgrimage to see relics yep. was a good way to tap into the treasury of merits. Yeah. So, again, those are other pieces of it. But I think you're right, and especially early on in the Reformation when they really have to break this kind of way of approaching their faith. We mm-hmm. ha- we're, we're changing... <laughs> It's a major paradigmatic shift on how you are saved and how you know God, um, and that you can know God is is really the emphasis. Well, and the reason why I mention this is because I have a good friend who became an Episcopalian priest. He's a chaplain in the Navy, and he became an Episcopalian priest. He was a Baptist minister, and he's always posting, you know, commemorations of saints, not because you have to pray to them, right. but just to remember right. the their lives as right. examples of faith, right? And and he's probably the only one I know, who, you know, at least at least um, certainly among people I've known who are church members, I have never known anyone to pay any attention to the lives of oh. great Christians of the past. You know, I think they've I think we've lost that in the Protestant Church to some uh, extent. Yeah, maybe I. 
I, well, of course, not an Episcopalian church, right? No, because I know. When you're in, they focus on that. Because yeah. in England, even though they had this Reformation, and even though they actually adopted some of the ideas of the Puritans, then there was a backlash, starting with Elizabethan, but but the, to go back to almost an entirely Roman Catholic-looking church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the exception... Um, with some of the exceptions of that's very close uh, exactly of 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 um some of the 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 church um um some of the fundamental beliefs about faith sure and so you you get this kind of re-engagement with the saints Mm -hmm. um i think you know i i don't want to put off for the the reformation part of the emphasis well first of all there are saints that were venerated that one might think of questionable kind yeah, of behavior, right, right? right? I mean, Simon Stylites sat on top of a right. hole for how many years, and how really is that really a saintly how activity? How is that an example uh, to anybody, right? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, he's my favorite. <laughs> so, well, I mean, um, I think of St. Patrick, you know, who, right. who or, or really St. Columba, who right. was the patron saint of, of right. Scotland, you know. Right. The people who, who go back to, to bring the gospel to their right. and, their you know, a land where Patrick had been enslaved, right? You know, I guess. I guess I would say we kind of we kind of leave that to the realm of historical study mm-hmm. more than we do with bringing up these people in in church. Surely. Although we could, yeah, uh, as long as we don't go about praying right. to them, and that's exactly. where that shift is. But um, uh, I, I I I guess I don't think it's completely gone. I think it's just. It's it's in a different. I mean, if you're Roman Catholic, you choose your own saint, mm-hmm. and you you have your own saint's name, and it's mm-hmm. it, it's it it pulls away from sure. focus on Christ. So, sure. yeah. well, and the other thing that that I was thinking about was you know how the indulgences that you 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 um, gain your salvation through the merits of the saints, not through the death of Christ. And I you know I know some Catholic lay people, and I think in their minds. They would say their salvation is through Christ. I think so too, and this emphasis actually reemerged in Council of Trent, mm-hmm. right? And also, you know, Roman Catholics today, I know many are devout Bible readers. Yeah. So some of the Reformation ideals mm-hmm. that came through the Protestant churches will will have, have made their the way Catholic into the Catholic Church. Church. Well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, after Vatican II, right. you get the liturgy and vernacular as well. Right. It just it's just kind of where the branches went. So mm-hmm. there is a reformation there. And I do think you're right. There's much more in, in Roman Catholic traditions now, very much an emphasis on a relationship to Jesus as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that then there are also saints to help you. So it has changed. It's yeah. so, it's so fascinating though, to be able to put this in context and really brilliant. I appreciate so much you being bringing this to us because, you know, just to be able to understand what salvation looked like in the middle ages, right. it is so foreign from our understanding. Understanding exactly today. and so it makes sense a little bit as to how and also the impact the reformers made on us today yes, on yes. how they're so central for our faith today and we want to overlook that sometimes mm-hmm. we have groups that want to jump from mm-hmm. the ancient church to now without understanding what the reformers actually did yeah, yeah. can't do that can't <laughs> thanks christy thanks Hi, friends. We're back. And, um, you know, we mentioned that this is such a well-known passage. 
And to some extent, that's a good thing. And to some extent, that may be a problematic mm-hmm. thing. And so we thought we'd just kind of talk around some of the challenges that this passage poses for us. And Christy had a thought. So Christy, take it away. Sure, sure. Well, obviously, we use this a lot at funerals. And, you know, often the way, the truth, and the life. And that becomes very much um, one of the one of the parts said at a funeral. And I think it's very encouraging for Christians when they hear it and they feel this this kind of comfort through that. But then I keep thinking of every time I do that, well, what about my questioners? What about my, mm-hmm. my people that are on the line? And, and, and it, it, maybe I've even heard, and I know this is bad use of scripture, but people using this as, as a weapon against those who don't believe. Mm-hmm. You know, well, if you don't believe, this is the only way to, mm-hmm. to the Father. So... I guess I was going to have Alan maybe tell us what he thinks about that. Well, you know, it is kind of a problem in John's gospel because, as I've mentioned before, you know, we have this whole setting where the Johannine community is under attack. And so the final authors and editors of the gospel have this us against them thing where they have sort of an all or nothing view. You're either in or you're out. And, you know, you're either a person of faith or you're a person who's condemned. And, I don't really see that as being true to Jesus. I think that more is is a way that they were trying to, um, I think, sort of um, just bolster, you know, the fledgling Christian community. Mm -hmm. Because we have to think about it that you know the Jewish synagogue that was that was attacking them had been around for centuries, and the Christian church Mm -hmm. was just a fledgling institution and was very Mm -hmm. frail in its in its existence. And so they were trying to bolster their fledgling Christian community against this sort of bulwark of of the Jewish synagogue um, by by sort of reassuring them that they truly were mm-hmm. in. And unfortunately, that comes across today as, you know, well, Jesus is the only way to mm-hmm. salvation, and therefore, you know, if you don't trust in him, then you, you're not saved. And I think I would like to distinguish between the uniqueness of Christ as our Savior and Jesus as sort of an exclusive mm-hmm. yeah. Savior. Let's talk about that. I think that's... Um I think that's one of the misconceptions. I mean, I think that's why people yeah. who are not in the faith find Christianity to be um, uh, elitist. Well, because I mean, they, I mean, a lot of churches say, you know, if you're if if you believe like we do, you're mm-hmm. saved, and if you don't, you're not. You know, right. and and you're bound for hell. Right. And uh, I don't think that's what Jesus would say. And I don't really see this statement. I mean, I know he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Mm-hmm. I, maybe rightly or wrongly, I tend to read that as a statement of Jesus' unique function of bringing us all to the Father. I have preached this as, you know, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He opens the way mm-hmm. for us all. He he helps us understand the truth about God and mm-hmm. the truth about ourselves. And the truth about God is that God loves us all. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he gives us life. He doesn't withhold life, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's not that Jesus is a gatekeeper here uh, trying to keep some people out and only letting a few in. It's more that Jesus is saying, you know, look, I have come to open the way to you mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. to come to the father. And this is the only way to get there means, you know, I am the one uniquely tasked by God to open the way. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some folks out there will say, well, I get to God through Buddha, right? through the Buddha, through Buddhism, or I get to right, God right, through Judaism, right. or I get to God through nature, through, through nature <laughs> or I get to God right. through, um, you know, various means. And 
you know, the, the thing about it is that, that John's gospel was written into a very religiously diverse world, mm-hmm. right? Because there was, there was some yeah, significant abs- religious uh, well, diversity absolutely. there. absolutely. Right? I mean, this is the age of, you know, many of the yeah. kind of mystery religions. Well, and not to mention the, the traditional Greek and Roman mythology. Uh, it was exactly. The, pan, you know, the pantheism of their yeah. gods, you know, um, as well as Judaism. But, you know... <laughs> In a, in a very religiously diverse world in our day and time, you know, I, I think we kind of have to be, have a little more sensitivity toward people who practice other faiths. And, you know, I would not want to say to someone who practices Buddhism or Judaism or is, is Muslim or, or perhaps practices Hinduism or whatever, that no, you, you don't know God rightly, so therefore you are bound for hell. Right. That's not my role. And, but what, what I, you know, I think what I, and we talked about this again a, f- a few weeks ago, I don't think it's that Jesus excludes people from salvation. I think from a Christian standpoint, we can say Jesus is the unique savior. He's the one uniquely chosen to fulfill the role of being the savior. And so we all have, you know, he opens the way to us all to God, to know God. But whether it's in this life through faith in Christ, or whether it's when you come face to face with Christ in the next life, mm-hmm. I believe that everyone comes to God ultimately through Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, our Buddhist brothers and sisters and our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Muslim brothers and sisters, they might not appreciate that statement right now. Um, and I get, I understand that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I understand that. Uh, they might see it as disrespectful. I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just, I think, you know, Christianity does make the claim that Jesus is the one uniquely, mm-hmm. uh, who uniquely fulfills right. this role. Right. Uh, but I don't think you, his, Jesus being unique in fulfilling this role means that it's necessarily exclusive. Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it does. And I, I think it's, you know, it's one of those big, those big questions. But yeah, I, I think, um, obviously, I want, I don't want to, to, I don't want to equalize the religions. No, they're uh, not all on the same page. Yeah. I think there's this, there's this idea of pick whatever flavor you want. It's all the same. All religions lead to the they same. They all lead plan. the same yeah. thing, and and I, I I don't and they don't even all have the same the same belief system. No, right? they don't. And, and and in terms of you know you, you have and to to claim that. It, that the Eastern religions view of Nirvana is equivalent to a Christian right. heaven. That's, that's really watering well, down two religions. Even and, Buddhists would say that's not the, exa- that's not the ex- same. Absolutely. Right. So, although, you know, just like within Christianity, there are varieties of Christianity, there are varieties of Buddhism, there well, are varieties of Judaism, absolutely. there are varieties of Islam. And so, you know, it, that whole thing of all religions have the same focus and they all wind up in the same place is overly simplistic. It's overly simplistic, and and I definitely don't want to be in that space no, because that that, that cheapens everybody. Right. Um, but I do think it, it does call on us then to live uh, as Christians to sh- to 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 share our truth, mm-hmm. um, whether that be in. In, in whatever kind of witness that is, that might be just in our actions. Well, and, and I think that brings us then to the true focus of this passage, which is on this idea that, you know, Jesus' relationship with God was demonstrated by what he did and what he said. You know, he, he could say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And what that looks like is, 
the things that I see the Father doing, I am doing, and the th- things I hear the Father saying, I am saying. You know, mm-hmm. and so that that unity of 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 purpose and function, the fact that Jesus was doing what God was doing, the fact that Jesus was saying what God was saying, that is that relationship of I am in the Father and and the Father is in mm-hmm. me. And so, in the same way, then. You know, I think we are called in John's gospel to emulate that same kind of relationship with Christ, that we love Christ to the point that we will, we will follow him and we will obey him in the way we live our lives. In, in John's gospel, you know, he, he, he speaks about being empowered to bear witness by the advocate or the helper, right? right, right? right. And so it's, I, I, you know, I know a lot of folks in the Presbyterian church are a lot more comfortable bearing witness by what they do than what they say. Right. I've always said it takes both. I think it we takes have both. To use words. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, I agree. And yet some people, you know, especially that are that are newer to the faith and are not ready to just say spread I, I work with a lot of kids, yeah. you know, and kids do not talk about no, their faith. Right, right. And so I encourage them. I said, Well, start with your action and then if somebody asks why you do something, say, Because this is what I believe. Yeah. And, and I think that um, I think that could be very effective sure. for that age group. Instead sure. of the opposite, which is what you tend to get with some of your evangelical traditions, it's all about what you say, and it's not so much about and it's, exactly and even, in, even in doing that. Well, yeah, I mean, we've you know, I think part of the reason why we're we're more interested in in bearing witness through our deeds than our words is because there are a lot of people who bear witness through their words and not through their deeds. Exactly, <laughs> their their lifestyles contradict exactly. their words. Exactly, <laughs> and they're 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 all about going out and knocking on doors and twisting arms and trying to browbeat people into faith, but their lives really don't don't reflect, well, you know, a genuine kind of faith. I, I have a personal story with this I'll share. When I was in college, I was doing a lot of questioning and I was in a religious inquiry class. I've talked about this before, I think, but, you know, I had the young woman that said, well, gosh, if you question anything about your faith, mm-hmm. you don't really believe. And it was such a shameful, hurtful thing to say mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, to me, she was doing the exact opposite than doing really the absolutely. work um, absolutely. Uh, uh, of, of how she should, was called to act in, in grace and love. and Absolutely. So it's really easy to jump on something like this and then jump on um, these words and using them as a weapon. As a weapon. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we go is, is making sure we, we don't do that um, and, and, and rather to be welcoming of all of God's creation. You know, mm-hmm. I think I've shared this story before as well, and that is that when I was a, when I was a professor at Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, um, I drove right by this fundamentalist Baptist church. I mean, it was an independent fundamentalist mm-hmm. Baptist church. You know, some of those folks, they believe that if you didn't come to our church, you weren't going to hell. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this, this, they, they had this, one of those signs out where you could, you know, put the letters up. And, and he, the, the pastor had the most just hideous ugly mean messages oh, on these right. on these I've sermons seen that done, yeah. you know on, on on the on this sign you know like for father's day he was like you know something like if you fathers if your kids are are drinking and drugging you know maybe you should think about not playing go- doing something besides playing golf on sunday morning or something like that you know very wow, accusatory yeah. uh one one time it was santa equals satan question mark you know oh. it was just really ugly well a group from this church came to my house one evening oh. And there was this teenage girl who had the role of dialoguing with me, leading me to faith in Christ. 
And, um, you know, I was trying to be gracious. And, but you, know, you could just see the smugness in this teenage girl's face of, I know the way. I know the truth. And if you follow my way and my truth, then you get to be, go to heaven just like I do. And if you don't, then you're, you're excluded and you're going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we had this conversation and, and, uh, you know, I explained to her, yes, I trust in Jesus and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Finally, she ended the conversation with, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? (laughs) (laughs) That was the, that was the standard that was the standard yeah. question. And, you know, here I am. I'm a PhD in New Testament. I'm teaching, you know, teaching. I've been pastor of church, of churches, you know. And, <laughs> you know, I, I was a, I think I was a deacon at my church oh, no. and, and, you know, a Sunday school teacher. I've been a Sunday school teacher since the age of 17 and, um, you know, been on mission trips and, right, and done right. all these things. And she was, you know, this 17-year-old girl was questioning whether or not, you know, I would wow. really go to heaven if I died that night. And I assured her, yes, yes, I do know for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not because of what, what I say or do, it's because of what Jesus what, what, has done for me. Was she happy with your response or did she really she disappointed that she didn't? I, I think she, she let it stand. She accepted it. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think the, I think the whole point was to get a conversion, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> because obviously I didn't go to her church. She didn't know me. I, exactly. She never saw me at her church. And so her assumption was, of course, that you were obviously damned. Yeah. So she was going to save you. And then yeah. when you assured her that maybe she... I, did she count it as a as a victory, or did she? Was she, she just disappointed? seemed. She just seemed to accept it. Uh, I don't think she. You know, the look on her face didn't betray any kind of. <laughs> you know, like, well, I'm so sorry that you're going to hell, or. Oh, well, it's good to know that you're a brother in Christ. It didn't convey either one. It was ah. just kind of a neutral, you know. Okay, if you say so. Wow, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Uh, I. Well, that's an interesting story. I always feel that there's a little almost abuse going on with kids in those kinds of situations. I agree. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I, I think that does real disservice to Jesus's call on our oh, lives, absolutely. actually. But absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, it's happening all the time. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. I yeah. think it's, it's just uh, responding in, a, in our own way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's putting a human system of, of actions in place of, of grace, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.